Hey guys, uh, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with the Salt Company, and I just want to say, hey, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I love that we got to thank our leaders, but I actually just want to thank all of you guys. Like, this is, you know, you could be doing, like, so many different things right now, but the fact that you're here worshiping King Jesus, coming for Bible teaching, honestly amazes me every single Thursday. It feels like I see a miracle every Thursday, and so I just want to say thanks for being a part of the family. And secondarily, if you're new here to Salt Company, which I think there are a lot of you guys who are, Hey, thanks so much for being here. We know how much it can be, uh, it can be scary to st- jump in. There's live, loud music. People are raising their hands. It can be a scary environment. So I just want to say thank you mu- so much for being here as well. But hey, tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. It's about 80% of the way through your Bible. We're very aware that paper, you probably can't see it. Okay, so you can take out your phone. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be camping out tonight. Let me pray as we enter into our time together. Yeah, Father, I, I, I just sense uh, just anxiety in this room and, and fear, and life can feel so busy at times, like we've got 800 different things happening all at the same time. It can feel overwhelming, and yeah, Father, pray that Thursday nights at 8 p.m. would be a peaceful hour that Many people would walk in and would be carrying burdens that you would lift for them. Father, pray that all of us would leave this place changed, that we wouldn't leave this place thinking that was fun music or a good talk, but would leave this place transformed by the goodness of your word and the ways that you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Pray that tonight wouldn't be about Salt Company. It wouldn't be about any of us here. Pray that you would eliminate distractions, that as people are walking in with different types of burdens, that you would leave them at the door. Father, pray that this would be a holy moment, that your presence would be felt, that your spirit would be heavy, and that students would leave this place changed. Pray that I would leave this place changed by the goodness of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What's the biggest problem in your life? Okay, I want to begin by asking that question. What is the biggest problem in your life? A life that might impact a problem that might impact other arenas of your life. Like it's not just that problem, but it affects the way that you do school. It affects the way that you sleep at night. It affects the way that you view yourself even. What's the biggest problem in your life? Okay, so as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking back to seventh grade. Okay, yeah, great time, wrong, worst year ever, okay? First of all, my head was the same size as it is now, but I was about three feet tall, and so my wife's like, you have such a big head, it's so cute, and I'm like, don't say that to me. Okay, so anyway, seventh grade was rough, so that's the context of the conversation. Guys, ever since I exposed myself by telling you guys this is how I start sermons, I'm like so self-conscious, I'm like, oh no, (laughs) they already know about it. Okay, back to the problem at hand. So I was in seventh grade, very socially awkward, used to wear extra smalls, rough year, and I remember this moment where I had a really big problem, okay? I was thinking about this big problem in my life that I just could not solve, and I had to try to put together, like, the tools, the teams, the tactics, and that problem was how to get out of the friend zone, yeah. Some of you guys are in it right now, and you're like, that's not funny. Don't make fun of me, okay? Tough. It's tough. I get it. It's impossible to get out of. Her name was Taylor. She was a hockey player, kind of had, like, an emo aesthetic, you know, and I thought that was really hot. Anyways, you guys all remember. You get it. Seventh grade. Come on. Come on. Chill out. Chill out. Whatever. 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 I feel the judgment. Okay. Big problem. Couldn't figure out how to fix it. Right? Guys, this problem. Don't laugh. Come on. This is a rough moment for me. This problem legitimately was rough. Like, like I remember leaving her uh, uh, chocolates and a rose in her locker. 
I had her code because that's how deep I was in. You know what I'm saying? You're like, you have a locker code? You're deep, man. You're never getting out. And she never talked to me about it. I was like, come on. Like, are you serious? Anyways, long story short, this is not a therapy session. So big problem, big problem. Impacted so many different things in my life. I like thought about how to get out of the friend zone in class, thought about how to get out of the friend zone in sports, all that kind of stuff. It was consistently on my mind. Okay, why do I talk about a stupid story about a friend zone moment in seventh grade? Why am I talking about a big problem? Okay, here's why. Many years later, boom, 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 as I reflect on my own life in the last couple years of my walk with Jesus, the singular biggest problem in my life is my pride. The simple reality is, guys, I've experienced a couple different big problems throughout my life. A big part of my testimony is abuse and father wounds and ethnic discrimination and poverty, and yet the singular problem that has caused more damage to my soul and the people around me has not been those things, but it's actually been my pride. The biggest regrets of my life and the moments of deepest shame in my life is when I would let my arrogance not let me love someone or care for them because I thought they were less cool than I was. The biggest regrets of my life is that my pride would actually go and break down some of my closest relationships and would actually push away people in my life that are really close to me that I don't talk to anymore. And not only is pride the fundamental root of my biggest problems in my past, it's actually the thing that I fear most about my future. Whether or not Joe's my wife in 30 years will be bitter or gone is 100% rooted in my pride. Whether or not I will be able to lay down my desires for her desires, whether or not my kids 20 years from now I don't have kids, but would like them sometime soon. That's just, it's a little thing. Hopefully you'll see little, little Asian babies running around. It'd be great. Um, they're going to be really cute, I promise. Whether or not in 20 years they'll be able to tell you that their dad was around will be dependent on if I can put aside my desires to choose how I want to live my life and my time and serve them. Pride is the singular root of my greatest regrets and my biggest fears about my future. But even as I began to introduce this idea of pride, this conversation around pride, all of us thought of one thing, okay? We all thought of arrogance. We thought of this outward negative expression where you treat other people less than because you think you're better than them. But the other side of pride that is almost never talked about specifically within Christian circles is actually insecurity. And the thing is, insecurity has robbed me of more joy than literally anything else in my life. And so the conversation we're going to be having tonight is, what does it look like to free ourselves from pride? Because here's my argument for you tonight, that both arrogance and insecurity enslave you. Because both are fundamentally rooted in this singular problem where you are comparing yourself with the people around you, people you think you're better than, arrogance, and people you think you're less than, insecurity. And my guess is for every single one of us in this room, we could think about moments and seasons of our lives where pride has ruled our lives and our souls and you've been stripped from joy. And maybe for some of you in this room, you're walking in tonight and you have insecurities so deep you've never even told anyone about them. Insecurities that root so deep into your psyche that it affects every single thing that you do. You walk into a room like this and immediately you're thinking to yourself, do people think I'm attractive? You walk into a room like this, and you're immediately thinking to yourself, do people think I'm smarter or, or cool to be around? Maybe for some of you in this room, you are carrying the insecurity that you grew up without a father, and you're wondering and asking yourself the question, 
Did he leave because of me? Maybe for some of you, you experienced insecurity that's rooted in a broken relationship where they left you and they never gave you a good reason why, so you've been asking yourself that question for years. Here's a simple reality for all of us in this room. Pride, arrogance, and insecurity enslave us, and so that's the conversation we're going to be having tonight. What does it look like to experience true freedom through true humility? Okay, open up your Bibles with me to Philippians 2. That's where we'll begin our time together. Philippians 2, we're going to start in verses 3 and 4 as we look at the true definition of humility. Look with me to verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay. Guys, come on. I... Literally part of the reason why I've had said is because I couldn't figure out, anyways, it's not funny, it's a last year joke, okay, 2022, new year, okay, let's begin in verse three, okay, this is what it says, new year, I can do it, okay, here's what it says, it says, do nothing of selfish ambition, okay, which by the way, when I read this, I was like, really, like nothing of selfish ambition, I was, I was like, dang it, like why does the Bible do this, I literally thought through it, I was like, okay, literally everything I've ever done. Not nothing, not like, oh, 10%. You know, literally everything I've ever done has been rooted in my selfish ambition. Like, like think about it, right? Even the good things that you do, like, like even things that Jesus calls us to do, and even things that Jesus models for us, like loving the poor, giving away your money, serving in homeless shelters. Part of the reason why I do that stuff is because I feel called to it, and I believe it honors Jesus. Part of it is because deep down inside, it makes me feel like a good person. Like, honestly, like, isn't that kind of depressing? Like, I'm like... Wow, I can't even do something for someone else, and yet I'm still feeling selfish. Do nothing of selfish ambition. Guys, something that I tell people is when you start reading the Bible, it's both awesome and it sucks, okay? Because you read the Bible and you're like, wow, Jesus, so beautiful. And then you read more about the Bible and you're like, oh, you read it and you're like, does that say that? And then you like read it and then you're like, you're reading the Bible and then it starts reading you. And it's like, don't do that to me, God. You're like, oh, selfish ambition. Oh, I don't want to, you know? It's, it's rough. Like, you, like, start exposing the Bible, and then you just feel exposed the whole time. You're like, oh, my gosh, what's happening to me? This is what happens when you read the Bible. You read stuff like do nothing out of selfish ambition, and you start to ask yourself the question, how in gosh darn heck am I supposed to do that? Gets worse, though. Look with me to the second part of verse 3. Gets worse. Gets worse. I know. This chapter's about to wreck us all. Here's the second part of verse 3. Here's how... Bible defines humility, to count others as more significant than yourselves. Feels like a typo. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like okay, so is Paul saying, like, humility is, like, loving other people? Because I can do that, right? Is humility, like, serving other people? Because, like, I can, I can do that. Wait, is humility, like, Minnesota nicing other people, like, just passive-aggressively being around them but not saying anything bad about them? Like, seriously, <laughs> That's what I thought humility was growing up. But to count others as more significant than yourself, that's a valuation statement. That's saying you're literally more important than me to me. That's the biblical call of humility. Okay, so I want to pull over here. That's what the Bible defines as humility, to actually see other people as more significant than yourselves. But I actually want to hit on something real quick called false humility, okay? I don't know if this is a real thing, but I made it up. False humility. Here's the idea of false humility. 
It's really common in Christian circles, like you'll meet some Christians, and they'll constantly be self-deprecating themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll be like, dude, you are so kind. And they're like, no, I'm not. And you're like, interesting. That's not how I wanted this to go. Like I wanted you to feel firm about what I said. Like this encouragement, you know? Or you'll be like, wow, you're so good at that class. You got an A. And they're like, no, I suck at it. I'm like, no, by definition, you don't suck at it because you got an A. You know what I'm saying? So this idea of false humility is when people think they're being humble because instead of lifting other people up, they just push themselves down. And that's how they define humility. Here's my argument for us tonight. In Christian circles, which I'm not saying you have to be a Christian to be here. I'm really, really thankful that you're here wherever you come from. But in Christian circles, I see a lot of false humility, but I see very little true humility. Much easier to push yourself down than lift others up. Here's what Tim Keller says about biblical humility. This quote smacks, y'all. Like, you guys need to take a picture of it, think about it, tweet it, whatever. I don't, do, I don't people don't even have Twitter anymore? Anyways, no, that's not a question. Move on. Okay. Here's what this quote says that Tim Keller writes. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling, which I was like, what a word, never used that before, sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Okay, here's the working definition for biblical humility. It's not that you think more of yourself or less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Okay, so here's my question for us. Why is our generation in particular obsessed, okay? We are radically obsessed with comparison. Why is that? Fundamentally, social media is built off of this concept. You can actually make people feel good about their lives by them fabricating a vision of their life that's not actually true or make people feel worse about their lives by showing other people who are living that life and then selling them a lot of product. Like that's like, that's the business model. If you're a business student, you know how this works. That's literally the idea that social media is founded upon. So why is it that our generation and maybe all of humankind or the human history of people have been obsessed with pride? And here's my argument for us. I believe that we settle for pride because we don't know our value. We settle for the fleeting feeling of arrogance because it feels good to be affirmed for a moment and then as fast as it came, it's gone. We settle for a life of drenched in insecurity because we don't actually know who we are so we keep grabbing at ways to feel secure. We settle because we do not know there's something far greater than pride that we are designed for. Do you know it's really easy to give someone an identity through a product or a service when they don't know who they are? Think about all the things you've been sold your entire life. Sold this vision for life that it's got to be like this amazing, like, oh, I travel 19 months out of the year. I make about $300,000, and I'm like really eco-friendly. Like, think about that vision, right? You've been sold this vision for life, and the way to get there, that euphoria type of life, is to buy a bunch of product. It's to be identified by the things that you own or the things that you do. It is really incredibly easy to sell someone an identity when they don't know who they are. But Salt Company, here's the good news that I have for you. We have, given, we have been given inherent value in Christ. So the reason why you don't have to look to pride to make yourself feel better or live in insecurity because you don't know who you are is because the significance that you have been given is actually outside of yourself. 
which means no matter what you've done or no matter what you do or no matter what you struggle with or no matter what you do or do not have, no matter the color of your skin or the, the way that you do school, you are significant not because of what you've done or who you are, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. That is the significance that you are given. Okay, so here's why true freedom only comes from true humility. That is because what people think of you doesn't matter because you know what God thinks of you. Your significance isn't based on what people think of you or what you have done, but it's based on what God thinks of you and what he has done for you. And here's what that gives you freedom to do. It frees you up from trying to prove to people that you're enough. Okay, here's what uh, Miroslav Volf said. I'll be honest, I don't know him. I haven't read his book, but this is a really good quote, so we're going to use it. Here's what he says. Christ came to transform us from never enough people to more than enough people that through his poverty we may become rich. Okay, here's what that quote is trying to show us. The Bible is like a scalpel. Like if you've ever read the Bible, you're like, you do feel really comforted. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love reading the Bible, but it's also like, Jesus is like, Mm-mm-mm. okay, surgery. Like, this is what he does. He exposes your heart, and here's what the Bible teaches you, that you have begun to believe a lie given to you by culture and the enemy. You have been taught, told, and believed that you will never be enough. Fundamentally speaking, you have believed a lie that you will never be smart enough to earn the approval of the people around you. You'll never be beautiful enough to earn the desire of the opposite sex. You will never be popular enough to earn the status of fame. And so functionally, people in our society, on your campus in the city, this is what they're doing. They have a sign above their head that says, I'll never be enough. So I got to either make this life something really cool or I'm going to live in insecurity for the rest of my life. I'll never be enough. I feel like for me, honestly, this pride thing is like kind of convicting because I'm like studying this text and I'm like, I don't even really know how to do this. But I've like genuinely been wrapped by my insecurity my entire life. Like every moment of every day. I remember thinking in high school, I was like, I got to show up and every single conversation I got into, I would start to feel my heart rate elevate because I was like, what if this person doesn't approve of me? And I got to college And it was like I was, like, trying to work so hard at school and make money because I really wanted to prove my dad that I'm like, I can make it on my own. And even as an adult, I'm married. I I get to be a pastor. for. I get so insecure about my sermons. It's so awkward. I'm, I'm bummed out that I'm telling you guys this. But it's like, man, like, every single time I preach a sermon, I'm like, that might have been the worst sermon in human history. Like, if you really think about it and, you know, that's what I think about. Like, actually, that is my legitimate first thought. And I'm like looking at this idea of humility, and I'm like, man, what is up with me that I cannot seem to grapple with this idea that my significance is not on what I do, what I've done, but on God alone? I struggle with that. And maybe you're here, and you're coming in with deep-seated insecurity, and you've been shackled to that insecurity your entire life, and you've kind of settled for this vision of life where it's like, oh, I know you're deeply insecure, but just keep medicating it day by day. One more like, one more post, one more hit, whatever it is, one more stand with that guy or that girl, whatever it is, you're trying to medicate that insecurity in your life and what you're looking for cannot be found in this world. The deepness of the brokenness in your soul needs something outside of this world. Can you imagine how awesome life would be if you were so secure in God's vision for you that you didn't need people to tell you that you were awesome, 
that you didn't need people to feed into your insecurities, and you could wake up every morning, morning knowing exactly who you were. Doesn't that sound like freedom? Okay, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay, so... Moving on. So how do we get it? So the question is how, okay? That's like a pretty sweet vision of life. Like, I want that, like, really, really badly. So the question is how? How do we get freedom? Look with me to verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says this. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, this is so good. Gosh dang it. That sounded angry, and I'm not. I'm just excited. Okay. Continue reading the text, Tony. You can do this. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so the question is how? Oh, that's nice. So, sorry, you're good. Uh, <laughs> so the question is how? Right? If true freedom comes from true humility, how do we access that humility? Look back with me to verse 5. This is super cool. Like This like, is the master key to understand this entire passage. Here's what we learned in verse 5, that that mind, that mind of humility, where you're thinking about others, not thinking about yourself, where you're thinking about Jesus, not thinking about yourself, that mind of humility is yours. Now, I know that sounds interesting because we just talked about how none of us can really do verses 3 to 4. Like If you try to do verses 3 to 4 without Jesus you will be ultimately disappointed. You'll be like, wow, I am so selfish. How do I do this? Oh, try to be humble. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. But, but verse 5 is the master key. Here's what verse 5 is telling us, that we have this mind in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news that I have for you tonight. When Jesus saves you, he invites you into a radical different life on this side of heaven. Here, here's my, one of my fears for, for us as you know, a ministry and people is that you would believe subconsciously that Jesus saves you in this life and then you just essentially flatline until you get to heaven. Like, oh yeah, I struggle with all these different things. I have these deep insecurities. I struggle with pride. It's all about me. I have all these addictions. I, I have all these sin struggles, and, but I just flatline until I get to heaven. But Saul, come here's my good news for you. The same grace that saved you that wasn't yours, that you didn't earn, is also the same grace that sanctifies you, that transforms you, changes you daily, daily, by the mind of Christ, by the Spirit of God in you. He gives you a future that is better than today. So I'll come in. if you're a Christian, tomorrow is better than today, okay? That's actually true because that's one more day that the Spirit of God is in you, transforming you from the inside out and sanctifying you to look more like Jesus, to experience more of the freedom of Christ. If you're saved, that is the beginning, it is not the end. You have a lifetime of knowing Jesus, and here's what happens is that when Jesus dies for you, you receive an inheritance, not just righteousness according to God, that you are right with God, but you receive this beautiful thing called his character, his humility. So the good news of verse 5 is that we have a promise that when God saves you, he'll continue to sanctify you, and he'll make you more humble by himself. Okay, but... That's not just how, okay? That is kind of how. It's like Jesus does it. But actually, if you want to look at the ultimate reason for how we become humble, it's actually a who. Look with me to verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, here's how you become humble. By falling deeper in love with the who. Day by day the only one in human history to actually do verses three and four. 
Okay, think about it. He did nothing of selfish ambition. Not a single thing that he did was about him. Nothing he did on this life in his ministry was for Jesus. He always did it for you. Think about how beautiful that is. Verse 3, the second half of verse 3, he literally counted others more significant than himself to the point of dying on a cross for us. Is there any better example of true humility than in Christ Jesus? See, Saul Company, what I want you to see is that if you want to become more humble, if you want to experience freedom that is far beyond this world, you have to look at the one who is truly humble and truly free. But here's what I want you to see in verse 8. The ultimate point of humility in human history was the death of Jesus. Not just the way that he lived on this earth, but also in the way that he died. Not just death by execution, but death by crucifixion. Saul Company, we talk about, I don't know if you notice this, Every sermon we talk about the cross of Christ. It's like, oh, wow, what are they going to talk about today? The gospel, that Jesus went on the cross and died for your sins. We talk about that literally every single Thursday. Why? Because that is the single most important event in human history. And on the cross, this is what Jesus exhibited. He exhibited what it looked like to be humiliated. See, back when this was written in Greco-Roman times, which just means like Greek and Rome, Greco-Roman, okay? Humble was not a positive terminology. Humble is the root of humiliation. This idea that Jesus on the cross was humiliated was that he was stripped of all of his dignity, all of his prestige, and all of his wealth. He is literally the most significant being in the entire world, knew who he was, and yet gave himself up for us. On the cross, Jesus was naked. Whatever picture you've seen of Jesus with clothes on doesn't exist. Jesus was stripped naked on the cross, bleeding and bruised. The God of the universe was on the cross naked. Humiliation led to our humility. That word is rooted in humility. Okay. So why can we become truly free through humility? Here's why. True freedom can only come from true humility because the one who is truly free became truly humiliated. So the path to humility is not a how is paved with the blood of you. Okay, here's what I want to say. I want to pull aside here. If you've gotten to this point in the sermon, we're about 15, 20 minutes in. I'm not exactly sure, I'll be honest. If you've gotten to this point in the sermon and you've thought thoughts like this, man, I can't wait for this thing to hit podcast because I'm about to send it out. You know what I'm saying? You're like, my mom needs it, my friend needs it, my coach needs it, my brother needs it, his brother needs it, the... every. You've thought to yourself the entire time, oh, this is for the person next to me. So, Company, I just described to you the humiliation of Jesus on a cross. If you haven't thought about the lack of your humility in the face of your God dying on a cross for you, you need this sermon. I think for a lot of us in this room, we just genuinely haven't grappled with this idea. This idea that we somehow think that in the face of knowing Jesus Christ, we could have our pride and have it. And eat it too. So, how do we become humble? Here's how. I'm gonna get on my knees in a moment. I'm gonna describe to you the situation of the cross. And I want you to close your eyes with me. This is by the way we become humble. And put out your hands. This is how we become humble. Jesus Christ at this point has left Jerusalem, 
has carried the cross upon his back. He was too weak to carry it because of the lashes on his back and the crown on his head and the blood that was dripping from his body, and so someone else had to carry it. He's been dragged up this hill, stumbling, being close to fainting, spit on and whipped by people. We are now at the Mount of Calvary, at the Mount of Golgotha. You're one of the only people left. Everyone else has left Jesus because they were only following Jesus because what he could do for them. And then you kneel. kneel. You're three feet away from the cross and you look up and you see the face of your Savior. Blood running down his head. Nails in his hands. A whipped back scraping against that rugged wood. And as you look at him, blood starts to seep down the cross and starts coming towards you. And you realize that blood was bled because of your sin and your brokenness and your arrogance thinking that you could do life without him. And then that blood hits your knee. And suddenly you find yourself kneeling in a pool of Jesus' blood. Here's how we become humble. We spend time at the foot of the cross because at the foot of the cross, there's no room for pride. Okay, you can open your eyes. The single root of pride is self-obsession. It's this idea that we think that the universe is about us. If you want to be healed from your humility, you have to be obsessed with something else. You have to become obsessed with Jesus. You have to go to the feet of the cross every day and say, Jesus, I am so sorry that I try to make this life about me. I am so sorry that I am so consumed with this life being about me that I cannot experience joy because of my insecurity and I hurt people through my arrogance. I am so sorry that I try to make this life about me. Jesus, take away my pride and give me your humility. And as you kneel with bloodied legs at the feet of the cross, watching the humiliation of your Savior, there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. You want to become humble? Spend time there. Okay. As I call the worship band back up, here's how I want to end tonight. That the only logical response to a humble king is verses 9 through 11. Praise the king who died and rose again. Look at with me to verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. So I'll come to you. Here's what I want you to see. The way that Paul ends this passage in, in Philippians 2, I just think and love the Bible because it's just amazing. He ends this passage by saying, when you look at the humility of Christ, the only response is full worship. The only response is undevoted worship of Jesus. Saul Kameni, you don't just worship with your mouth. You don't just worship while you sing songs. Although we do, and we value that, and we say, raise your hands and worship for all King, all hail King Jesus. We value that. But you don't just worship on Thursday nights. If you've encountered a humiliated king bleeding out for you so that you could have freedom through true humility, then you don't just worship Thursday nights. You worship every day for the rest of your life with how you live, the way you think about work, the way you think about school, the way you think about money, the way you think about relationships, the way you think about your unbelieving classmates, the way that you worship becomes your entire life. 
the biggest lie that the devil wants to tell you is that you can be a Christian by just appreciating Jesus. I like Jesus. Dude, I've got a crown. I mean, I've got a tattoo that says Jesus on me. I've got a Bible verse in my bio. The biggest lie the devil wants to convince you of is that you can look at a humiliated king bleeding out for you on a cross and say, oh, I like that. That's nice to me. So here's what verses 9 through 11 tell us. That every knee will bow. And I just, I have this sense that some of you guys haven't heard this. And I just have this frustration with the Western church that we become so secret sensitive that we don't teach texts like this. Listen, Saul Kameni, Jesus did die, and he rose again. He is currently sitting at the right hand of power in heaven with God Almighty. He didn't just die, though. He didn't just rise, though. He is coming back. And here's what that means. Every knee will bow. In his earthly ministry, he used a staff, but one day he's coming back, not as a carpenter on a donkey, but a king on a white stallion. Not with a staff in his hand, but with a sword in his hand and a tattoo on his diet that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. And you can either be invited to bow to him today. Say, King Jesus, I give you my life. You are more beautiful than anything else I've ever seen. I see your humiliation and I want you. You have an invitation today, but one day it will be a command. Every knee will bow. Whether or not you believe that to be true, it will happen. The second coming of Jesus is real. So Saul Kameni, here's the only logical response to getting on your knees and seeing the humiliated king in front of you. The only logical response is to say, King Jesus, you are my ultimate hope. I can only experience freedom because you were broken on my behalf. I have access to your humility because you died for me. The only logical response to King Jesus is to raise your hands in worship, to spend more time on your knees, looking at the humiliated king and saying, King Jesus, I give you my life. And so for the next two songs, we're going to sing Son of Suffering and All Hail King Jesus. And listen, there's some of you in this room where you've liked Jesus your whole life, but there is no way to like Jesus when Jesus is that good. So raise your hands in worship. Give him all that you have because he is worthy of everything that you have in this moment and for the rest of your life. Let me pray that would be true for all of us. Father, the greatest lie the devil would love to convince us of tonight is that we can just sit here and like Jesus. We can appreciate Jesus. We can say, Jesus, that's great. I, I know that you died on the cross, but, but I'm just going to keep you at an arm's length. But Jesus, here's what we know to be true that you are sitting at the right hand of power and one day you're not coming back on a donkey, you're coming back on a stallion with the sword in your hand that says, King of kings, Lord of lords, and every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus, we believe that tonight. We believe that Jesus, you are coming back, which means it impacts how we live today. So Father, may we be a people of worship, not just in these next two songs, but in the rest of our lives. And would we look to you for true humility? And as we experience your humility through your humiliation, would we become a people so free, free from the ways that people think about us, free from the ways that we're arrogant and insecure. Would we become people truly free because the truly humble king died on a cross and rose again and is sitting at the right hand of power. We believe that one day, Jesus, you will come back. And so tonight we worship like that's true. Amen.